HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. Hello, welcome to Japanese. I'm Ehoseki Kotema, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. Our studio is currently closed due to the outbreak of COVID-19 caused by coronavirus in New York City, so we are recording this episode remotely. It may sound a little different than usual, but we're happy to have technology that allows us to keep making our regular programming. So let's start our show. So uh, this show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every dining supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is too mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is Aman Cohen, who is a chef and owner of Dirt Candy in Lower East Side and co-owner of Lekka Burger in Tribeca, both in Manhattan. Amanda has been cooking vegetarian food for the last 20 years since when vegetarian sauce gained the absolute minority. She is a James Beard Award nominated chef and definitely a pioneer of the vegetable forward movement in America. And Amanda visited Japan in December 2019 to discover vegetarian food culture in the country. As, as you may know, Japan is a Buddhist society and had a heavily restricted meat consumption policy uh, that lasted. Uh, 1,200 years until the end of 19th century. So it's a very interesting situation over there. So today we'll discuss what Amanda discovered in Japan, how she applies discoveries to her dishes in New York City, what vegetarian cuisine means in a modern society, and much, much more. But quickly before we start, Japan is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitch, and Spotify, and subscribe to Japanese. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Also, if you have ideas about the topics of the show or show guests, please let us know. You can email us at japanese at heritageradio.org or kikokatema.com. Now let's start our conversation with Manikon. Hello, Amanda. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So this is my first remote show, so it's kind of exciting. <laughs> but how are you? 
I'm good. I, I am surviving at the moment. Uh, yeah. The restaurant is closed, so I, I guess I get a holiday. <laughs> yeah. Well, we just have to wait until things passes, and well, we're fine. So let's yeah. just try to be positive and enjoy the moment. Exactly. It's a, it's day by day, and there's absolutely nothing I can do. So might as well go with it. Yep. <laughs> okay. So. So first of all, um, well, I think uh, many people don't know you yet. Um, we have a wide audience. Currently, we have over 19 uh, audience in 190 countries. So let me ask you where you're from and what did you eat when you grew up? <laughs> uh, I'm from Canada, Toronto to be exact. Mm, that's why you said what Pardon? That's why you are so nice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and what was the second question? What I wanted to be when I grew up? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't think I ever knew what I wanted uh, to do. I just, you know, I like to cook a lot. And one day I realized I needed to get a job. So the only thought, thing that I thought I might possibly want to do is cook, and, and I stuck with it. Okay. Yeah, actually, the, the sound, sorry, the sound is awful, but um, the, my second question was, what did you eat when you grew up in Canada? Uh, what did I eat? Um, you know, Canada's a pretty special country, I would say, uh, because we have a lot of different cultures there. And so it really influenced our food growing up. You know, from a really young age, we ate all different kinds of food, like uh, I mean, we had, there, and there is no such thing as like really Canadian food. Uh, so, you know, lots of different uh, ethnic, ethnic food, lots of different kinds of, you know, we ate like Indian and Chinese and Italian, Portuguese, Jamaican. Uh, I will say that I probably didn't eat a lot of Japanese food growing up though. Mm, okay. So then when and why did you get into uh, vegetarianism? Ah, well, um, you know, when I was 15, which was about 30 years ago, uh, all my friends were becoming vegetarians. Uh, they were sort of very politically aware and uh, they were very environmentally conscious and uh, animal rights conscious. And they all became vegetarians. And I wish I had a better answer, but really, I just followed suit. <laughs> uh, I would just did what they did. Uh, I happened to, as it, as it turned out, I, uh, I was always vegetarian. We just didn't really know it. Like it, when I became one, I said I became, I was one. It didn't change my eating habits at all. I just had always never really eaten the meat anyways. Wow. So because you really thought vegetables were your favorite food taste-wise? Yeah, I really liked them. I love the flavor of them and I didn't like the flavor of meat. Uh, I mean, I certainly love vegetables now more than I did as a kid. Uh, but uh, yeah, I was always more drawn to them. Mm. Because you had a good access to uh, good produce when you grew up? Yeah, I think we did. You know, uh, the produce in Canada was pretty, uh, was pretty amazing, especially, uh, you know, in the summer months and during a growing season, we're, we're in farm country. Toronto is a big city, but right outside of it, it's a big, big uh, farm area. And uh, it, the, what we had was pretty spectacular. Uh, 
the center of Toronto has always been this amazing farmer's market. So uh, it sort of ran the city for a while. Right. So that's interesting, right? People tend to think like people become vegetarian or vegan because it's good for the environment or health, but you had a natural interaction to the vegetarianism. So I think that you're very lucky too. Yeah, I think so. Right. So, so how and where did you learn um, how to cook vegetables? I mean, in vegetarian or vegan ways. Yeah. So I had uh, I had gone to cooking school, and it was a vegetarian cooking school. And so for many years, I worked in the vegetarian kitchens of New York City. I also worked in some mainstream ones, but by and large, I probably worked in more vegetarian ones. And that started giving me a basis of how to cook vegetables. Uh, but everything I thought I knew when I opened my restaurant, I realized I knew nothing. And it was a vegetarian and a vegetable restaurant. I mean, we called it a vegetable restaurant from the beginning. Uh, but I, I realized very quickly that I didn't know as much as I thought I knew. And uh, so we started looking at the kitchen more as a lab. I really, you know, every day we were like, okay, how are we going to experiment? What are we going to learn about vegetables? And we came in and we tested and tried to discover as much as possible. Mm, interesting. So uh, I, th- I think you went to the New York City, um, the Natural Gourmet School. Is that uh, culinary school specialized yeah. in? Okay. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I, I, not many people know uh, there's a specialized culinary school for like natural and the vegetable oriented program. So that's interesting. Okay. So that the, the Natural uh, Gourmet Institute is now part of uh, the International Culinary Institute. Yeah. Think, yeah. Right? So, all right. Um, so, and before you opened Dirt Candy in 2008, uh, so you said you worked in different kitchens. Where did you work? <laughs> so, Let's see. Uh, I worked in Whole Foods. I worked in a restaurant called Other Foods. I worked at a restaurant called Pure Food and Wine. I worked at Mesa Grill for a number of years. Uh, I worked at a diner in Spanish Harlem for way too long. Uh, And then I worked in some bakeries and a couple of other vegetarian restaurants. Heirloom. I worked at a place called Heirloom. I'm trying to remember my whole resume now. Uh, but yeah, I mean, lots of very different things. I worked at a summer camp for a while. Right. So back then, it's a, the situation is very different. Now, being a vegan and vegetarian is a cool thing to be. But back then, it was not. It's totally not a you know, mainstream thing to do. Yeah, no, not at all. And, you know, <laughs> having now been in this uh, city cooking for a long time, it's amazing to see the change. And just to go back for a second, one of the things that's most amazing to me, and and I I hope one day there's a lot more recognition for it, is, you know, everything that we learned at the Natural Gourmet, and I was there at this point uh, over 20 years ago, we're all cooking that way now. We're using ingredients we were talking about in the school 20 years ago, and we're using techniques and uh, we're using ideas that, you know, the school was so ahead of its time. Uh, and it's pretty amazing to see uh, how not only that has sort of come into its own, uh, but also how many more vegetarian and vegan places there are in the city. I never could have imagined it. Right. 
Okay. Well, I'm just curious how people's health are going to be improved or it doesn't change. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's only mere 20 years. It's a big difference. So we'll see what happens. So uh, for our listeners who have never been to Dirt Candy, uh, which opened in 2008, uh, what is the concept and what kind of dishes do you serve there? So Dirt Candy is an all-vegetable restaurant. And uh, we really, really mean that. Uh, we're not vegetable forward. We don't have a couple of vegetable dishes. We are all about celebrating vegetables. And every dish is based on one vegetable. Uh, even our cocktails have them. Our desserts have them. Uh, we really want, when people come to dinner here, to feel that they're sort of in a vegetable wonderland. Yeah, and I, I've been to your place many times but i think one of the most impressive things about uh your food is it's so visibly impressively beautiful so is that something you try to make it more you know enticing people get more interested in having fun with vegetables yeah yeah you know it, it's people i love making this is pretty uh that's you know making food is very satisfying but it's really fun to make them beautiful but I'm also really fortunate. You know, vegetables are inherently colorful. Uh, and so there's a lot more you can do with them. Like, I think about putting a piece of meat. And there's nothing wrong with eating meat. But I think of putting a piece of meat on a plate. I'm like, well, that's not actually that pretty. But you put a couple of vegetables on a plate and you're like, ooh, that really is pretty. They're just beautiful to look at. Right. That is so true. It's like uh, even... You know, pizza margarita does classic because of the color red. I think that makes a big difference. Exactly, exactly. And so you don't have to do that much more work to make them beautiful. But if you do do that much more work, if you just, you know, fuss a little bit, uh, you can end up with something extraordinary. Right. And also your dishes, it's it's a beyond just one or two colors. There's so many different elements and yeah. flavors too. So. Yeah, really, if your listeners have not been there, it's Dirty Candy. It's amazing. So, and it's fun. Yeah, I really believe dinner should be fun, you know. Uh, it's, you should never feel very serious when you're eating. Yeah. <laughs> right. So it has to be fun. Um, all right. So what is the most challenging aspect of cooking plant-based food, like be vegetarian or vegan for you? Um, I think... I think it's twofold. One, uh, just actually the labor involved in it. It's incredibly labor intensive and uh, it's sometimes hard to get uh, our guests or customers to understand how much labor goes into one dish. Uh, and so we're always sort of walking this fine line where we want to do really exciting food, but we have to often pull ourselves back a little because it's going to be too much work. And if it becomes too much work, then I'm going to have to charge a lot more. And uh, we're, we're still finding that customers don't necessarily want to pay that much money for vegetables. And then vegetables just don't aren't a luxury ingredient yet. And then the other part of it is, and it's the fun part, but it's the hard part, is there really is no roadmap. And so I, having now done this for uh, 11 years and feel very much like a pioneer in it, uh, you know, there is no encyclopedia really on what to do with vegetables. There, there's not a lot of recipes out there for creative vegetable dishes. And 
uh, having to always sort of figure out the next big thing can sometimes be a little challenging. Right. Yeah. Like I see, I started to see more, um, you know, many restaurants at least have vegan or vegetarian dishes at fine dining or, you know, regular restaurants. And I see like, for example, uh, cauliflower steak, and it's a steak of cauliflower, which is delicious, but it's very expensive for, you know, steak of cauliflower. But exactly. of, it's, it's, you know, I mean, it, I, there's no offense, but, you know, but your airports, like one of my favorite dishes, the spinach meal for you. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> this pastry, right? And layered soup concentrated spinach mousse, smoked pistachio butter, and, and, uh, Lilac spinach, dehydrated grapefruit, and smoked pistachio salad. So it's it's not a joke. You had a lot of work no. into it. <laughs> it's a lot of work, but I'm impressed you remember that dish. It was one of my favorite too. It's so pretty. <laughs> right. And uh, yeah, I really, you used, now you have a lower east side, bigger space, but when are you still in uh, East Village? It's a tiny, tiny little space. And uh, was it eight seat or something? It was eight seat. Before you moved to uh, space. Yeah. So, yeah, everybody's fighting for your seat. And, uh, yeah, you came a long way. So congratulations. I know. From my baby restaurant to my normal-sized restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about your trip to Japan in December last year. So I heard that you went to Japan by the invitation of uh, the Tokyo Visitors and Convention Bureau, which is a Japanese government organization. So how were you selected for the trip and what was your mission? Uh, The mission was to go and explore uh, vegan and vegetarian food in Tokyo, specifically Tokyo too. Uh, I accepted the challenge. That was the mission, and I accepted the challenge. <laughs> and the idea was to to see what was there and uh, to try to you know bring back a little bit of my knowledge and and share it uh, with uh, New York City. Mm. So how did did they find you for the mission? Uh, they, I, through a, a common friend of ours, Michael Harlan Turkle, uh, he had been working with them and he had actually uh, sort of suggested it as a trip as they were trying to figure out their next tourism campaign. Mm, okay. So, by the way, Michael Harlan Turkle, he's, uh, um, he does everything and he's also the host of uh, the food scene on Heritage Radio Network. And uh, he went to Japan for his book, The Acid Trip. And uh, he discovered so many things about Japanese vinegar. And uh, it doesn't make sense. He knows a lot of the Japanese um, vegan and vegetarian scenes. And so that makes sense. And he went to, on the trip with you, right? Yep. We, uh, we traveled all around Tokyo together. Okay. So, um, yeah. And as I said at the beginning of the show, the Japanese were uh, prohibited from eating meat for 12 centuries, from year, I think, 675 to 1871. And in the 17th century, Emperor Tenmu banned consumption of cattle, horse, dogs, chickens, and monkeys. Whatever, not why the monkeys, but to treat animals humanely <laughs> and also to follow the philosophy of Buddhism that animals and humans are uh, both equally part of the nature that surrounds you. So, so technically, you could still eat meat except for the five animals, such as white birds and hare. But Japanese diet developed over time based on fish and vegetables for dysregulation, I think. So 
So let's talk about what vegetarian foods you discovered in Japan. And the first, you, what cities did you visit with Michael? And how did you coordinate、uh, the places to visit?、Uh, so we only went to Tokyo.、Uh, and we went to multiple places in Tokyo. And he, you know, Michael did a lot of research before we went. He had a long list of places that he wanted to explore. And、uh, Tokyo Tourism worked with him. Uh, to uh, set up a lot of the appointments.、Uh, so, it, you know, doors were open for us that I think normally wouldn't be.、Mm, right. So, that makes sense. But by invitation of、uh, the Tokyo Business Convention Bureau. So, you concentrate on Tokyo. That makes sense. <laughs> There's so many、yeah. places. Yeah. All right.、Um, so, let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll talk about Amanda's many, many inspiring discoveries in Japan. So, please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan Asian to American, and that is why they are located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and the Welsh natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services, from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit coin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japanese broadcasting live from a studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Tema, and my guest today is Amanda Cohen, who is chef and owner of Dirt Candy in Lower East Side and co owner of Becca Burger in Tribeca in Manhattan. She is a James Beard Award nominated chef and definitely one of the pioneers of the vegetable food movement in America. We've been talking about her recent visit to Tokyo. So let's talk about the places you visited. So, first, I heard you went to a Yuba or Tofu Skin Factory, which is an essential ingredient for vegetarian video cooking in Japan. So, what did you find?、Uh, the Yuba was amazing. <laughs>、uh, the, I, I mean, I, I'm very familiar with Yuba. We've tried to make it in our kitchen before and have had some success, but it's never turned out.、Uh, Uh, as good as it could.、Uh, and we were so. You guys basically,、uh, it's a, a thin skin formed by boiling soy milk, right? That's how you make it. It is. It is. And, I, and I think that、uh, as we've sort of been discussing and looking into it a little bit more, you have to use very good soybeans. So I, I think the ones that we're able to get、uh, and make our soy milk out of. The soy milk can often be delicious, but it's just not the right kind to make yuba. So there's something a little missing.、Mm. So that means that you have to, the good, good soybeans means you need a lot of protein. Yeah, I think, yes, exactly. And fresh, I'm not sure how fresh our soybeans are.、Um, so at the yuba factory,、uh, you know, we got this really special tour. We got to go downstairs and pull the yuba,、uh, which was amazing. It smelled so good. 
And as soon as they pulled it off, uh, the boiling soy milk, we were allowed to eat it. And I've never had anything so fresh and soft and luscious. It was incredible. Mm. Is that like a crepe? Yeah, like a hot, chewy, soft crepe. Mm, nice. Okay. Right. So, but also really creamy because the soy milk is creamy. So you get everything at once. So if you want to use it, how do you use Yuba in, in general and, you know, in your way? Well, so currently we use it. Um, we actually have it deep fried and they're like little chips for one of our dishes because Yuba deep fried is just the crunchiest, crackliest, most delicious thing. Uh, but we also, we served it, uh, we did a sort of a Japanese day here at the, the restaurant where uh, we remade or we remade with some of my, uh, with my impressions, uh, some of the dishes that we had in Japan. And uh, we made the yuba into noodles. Uh, we deep fried them. Uh, we put them in a broth. Like, there's so much you can do with them. You can have soft noodles, crunchy noodles, chewy noodles. Plain, just you, but plain with a little bit of soy. So it sounds like it's it's not discovered fully enough in this country. But yuba is often used in shojin yori, which is a vegetarian uh, cuisine. And the shojin was brought to Japan, I think, in the 13th, 14th century from China, and it's based on a principle of Buddhism. So that's why it's served in temples and certain restaurants in Japan. So. Yeah, usually it's a cooked in dashi and very delicate. But the way you use is uh, expanding opportunities, possibilities of yuba. So that's exciting. Oh, yeah. I think there's, I mean, to me, it's such an under, undiscovered uh, food. It's, uh, uh, it would be a dream of mine if I could open a yuba restaurant. I just, I love the texture of it. <laughs> right. Well, I'm sure if you have a yuba shop, you have, you're going to get a lot of customers from lava restaurants too. <laughs> so maybe we should put it in your plan in the future. <laughs> um, all right. And I heard that you took a class of rice cooking as well. I did. It was really, really interesting. Uh, so we did this rice workshop with uh, Momoko Nakamura, who's also known as the rice girl. Uh she has a, a rice subscription, but based on the 24 seasonal seasons, micro seasons uh, of rice, uh, which is pretty interesting even thinking of yeah, 24 micro seasons, you know, in North America, we think of seasons as four, summer, fall, winter, spring. And this idea of these micro seasons, that really blew my mind when she started talking about it. And she's right, clearly. I mean, nothing things don't grow at once. Micro seasons are really true. And so how, and I probably won't do it justice, uh, but how she talked about rice and when it was grown and when it was picked and when you're supposed to use certain rices, it really sort of changed how I was, uh, how, what I had thought about rice. You know, to me, rice is something that comes in a bag. Sometimes it's white. Sometimes it's brown. (laughs) Sometimes, um, it's a little fancier. Sometimes it's less, but this idea that it could be as sort of bespoke as any other ingredient, you know, uh, like a vegetable, it has a season and it changes with the seasons. It's pretty amazing. Mm, I never thought of that. Rice can be seasonal. So yeah, and actually I, uh, because I, I learned 
but heard from you, I contacted her. I'm hoping that she's going to be on my show. And uh, I was waiting for her. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. And I, I was surprised she was born and raised in Japan, uh, in the States. And he moved to um, from L.A. to Tokyo in 2015, I heard. So that's a very interesting. But she's very objective to Japanese culture, but very, uh, I I think he has a deep understanding because she's a Japanese-American. So it's interesting. Yeah, and I really like that it's sort of she came back for life. And it's just this, what we think of as a staple. It's so much more than just a staple. It's not just. It's not just a grain of rice. Every every grain of rice tells a story, and the way she talks about it, it's really engaging. Mm, okay, so did you cook rice with her at the class? She showed us how she cooked rice, uh, which was uh, I mean, it's a it's how you cook rice. It wasn't uh, uh, it was it wasn't sort of a newfangled way. Put water, wash the rice put it in a pot, or have it come to a boil. But I will say one of the things that was interesting, and, you know, um, rice is sometimes fussy. And we think, we I think we always blame it on ourselves, like, oh, I cooked the rice wrong. And then watching her cook the rice and her talking about the rice, she's like, you know, sometimes rice has more moisture. Sometimes it has less. You really have to know what rice you're cooking with. Uh, and when it was picked because it is going to change uh, how much water you need to put in or how the rice is supposed to be. Some rice is supposed to be a little bit wetter. Some supposed to be drier. It's the nature of the kernel. Mm. So now that, that makes me understand why sushi chefs take 10 years to master how to cook sushi rice. Yeah. <laughs> it makes so much more sense. They know their rice intimately. Mm. Right. Okay, and uh, so you also went to a wagashi shop, a Japanese, wagashi Japanese traditional sweets. So what do you think about Japanese sweets? <laughs> um, you know, they were good. Uh, they were very, very different from American sweets. Right, but they can be vegan easily, right, because it's not much milk or dairy. Yeah, actually, all of them, I think, were vegan. I don't think we had a single sweet that wasn't. And I, I like them, actually. It's a very different sort of, for me, a con different concept of sweet. It's a, uh, it's so much more about uh, texture than it is about sort of getting a sugar rush. Uh, you know, and I think of American sweets are really, they're really sweet. And you're sort of, you eat them because you want to have a little bit of sugar. Uh, and, and, and that's what's satisfying. And when I was eating a lot of the Japanese sweets, it's so much more about getting the satisfaction from the texture. Mm, right. So usually, you know, Japanese wagashi sweets tend to be with mochi or azuki beans or both or fruits and not, you know, not eggs or dairy. So it's kind of more protein. And there's a lot of sugar in it too, but it's in a way kind of healthy way of satisfaction that you get more easily I think yeah and I felt that it was it really was satisfying in a way that you didn't have to eat a lot uh, and everything was portionally like was perfectly sized and you would have your sweet and then you'd go on with your day versus you know you eat a little bit of sugar and then you want more sugar and then more sugar and you become addicted to it right <laughs> right and the other thing about wagashi is it's so seasonal and it's seasonal by looking too 
So it's visually beautiful, stunning. And then you can see by going to Magashi shop, you can know what season you are now. Yeah, no, and that's really neat. And that's one of the sort of, uh, one of the takeaways from my trip to Japan, uh, which is how seasonal everything really is. Uh, it's neat. Like you don't see candy shops here, sweet shops here, changing what they offer really based on the seasons. I mean, strawberries come into season and fine strawberries are offered, but everything else is still offered. And in so many of the stores we went into and restaurants, if it wasn't in season, it wasn't served. Mm, that is so true. Yeah, that's the essence. I think if you have to pick one essence of Japanese cuisine, I think that's the seasonality. So, yeah. And uh, speaking of, so you went to, uh, uh, well, actually, you had collaboration, uh, collaborate, the pop-up dinner with Japanese female chefs to make a multi-course pop-up dinner at the Tsurutokame Um that means uh, crane and uh, turtle. <laughs> That's a cute name. That's in Ginza. And uh, I heard chefs were all female. It sounds very innovative because, you know, the tradition, it's a very traditionally uh, male-dominant uh, culture in Japanese food industry. So, and uh, you are a board member of women chefs and restaurants in the U.S. So how do you find the all-female chef restaurant? That was the best time. <laughs> I cannot tell you how much fun it was. Um, first, everybody was so gracious uh, and so so kind. I mean, you know, there I am, and I don't really speak much Japanese. <laughs> uh, and uh, most of uh, the women in the kitchen spoke a little bit of English, and they were all so welcoming and uh, really, you know... You know, I do a lot of dinners in different kitchens, and there's always this moment where everybody's sort of trying to show off what they do. You know, and you're like, well, this is, I'm, I'm worthy of being here because this is my dish that I'm going to serve. And the other chef does the, the same thing. And uh, that certainly was not what happened to me when I walked into this kitchen. Everybody was just so genuinely open and excited and curious. All the female chefs there were as curious about what I was doing as I was about what they were doing. And we really, really uh, shared a lot of information. And there were so many questions being asked. And it just felt so collaborative. Uh, and, you know, these, these female chefs, they work really, really, really hard. Uh, and it was very inspiring. Mm, right. Well, it sounds like it's a new kind of space. They serve traditional Japanese cuisine, basically, right? Yeah. Traditional, but I would say with a little bit of a, a modern twist. Mm. Like some, uh, I don't think of caviar for a but kind of like Western ideas or kind of different. Yeah, I mean, all the ingredients are Japanese, but uh, there's some like... Uh, um, different techniques that they're using, I think. So that uh, it's certainly the kaiseki follows the traditional formula, uh, but there there's some surprises, things that I don't think you'd see at any other kaiseki. They're really putting uh, their own spin on it. And it's interesting. And I, uh, I often, when I travel, I, I don't go back to a restaurant again because I've eaten there and, uh, you know, I'm like, well, it's time to move on to the next one. Even in New York City, I barely go back to the same restaurant uh, and I am so excited to go back to 
Tokyo one day and see what they are up to. Right. Well, definitely, it's going to be on my list. So that's Tsurutokame in Ginza. Right. Okay. And, uh, and the most exciting part mm-hmm. about them is they all take singing lessons together. And the whole staff, every single person in the kitchen will sing you happy birthday if it's your birthday. Uh, <laughs> that's so awesome. <laughs> wow. So it's just beyond the framework, far beyond the framework of traditional um, kitchen. I think it's in anywhere in the world. It's hard to find this kind of place, I think. So it's open and like the gross minded. Open and giving it. And, and really, it, you feel as soon as you walk in uh, that you are part of a community. Uh, it's very, very different than any other restaurant uh, that I have ever been to. Wow. Okay. So I can't wait to go there myself <laughs> next time I go to Tokyo. So, so the, the pop-up dinner, what was the theme of the dinner? You know, I think, uh, it was just this idea that we would sort of share the night together or, or share, it was actually a lunch, share the lunch together. So they did, the idea was that I would introduce some of my food, uh, to, uh, some, uh, some of their customers and, uh, some of the media in Japan and they would get to do the same. So what did you cook? Uh, it was tricky because I was trying to, uh, you know, with my limited knowledge of Japanese cuisine, I didn't want to do anything that would stuck out too much. <laughs> uh, and so I, I wanted to do something that would, you know, fit in enough with, A, what I could make there. Uh, flying halfway across the world and having to cook can get really complicated sometimes. Uh, and I didn't want to do something that, I wouldn't be able to find the ingredients for. So there's a lot of back and, and forth uh, on uh, what I should make. Uh, so we started with a, a, a roasted butternut squash consomme that we've been making at uh, Dirt Candy, which is just really, really this flavorful, clear butternut squash uh, broth. And I thought it would be a nice sort of introduction to the way I think of food, which is here's a vegetable, look at what you can do with it. And then uh, I did the portobello mousse, which has been on my menu since day one. And uh, I felt it's just a really iconic dirt candy dish. And if I'm going to fly around the world and cook, that's the dish that I want people to taste and remember me by. Yeah, that's like, it's interesting, I guess. Sorry, that this, your portobello mushroom mousse, uh, uh, that's like, you know, almost tastes like a foie gras. I can't believe it's only mushrooms. So I'm so, so glad you served it there. Yeah, I am good. I'm I'm really glad I did too. And, and I think that sort of, uh, you know, one of the, it doesn't have the most, it doesn't have a really big taste, but it's one of the things that I also learned from Japan. And, and I, I, I'm glad I was able to sort of cook along the same lines, which is that dish is so much about texture. And I found so much of the food in Japan would be so delicately flavored, but have such an interesting texture. And so even though it's a very Amanda Cohen, New York City dish, when I started thinking about how sort of texturally soft and luscious it was, and I'm thinking about a lot of the like food that I was eating in Japan, it made a lot of sense. And then the the last dish I did, because I just wanted to have fun, was I did our uh, tiny little carrot burger. Wow. <laughs> wow. Is that like a liquor burger? Uh, you know, burger that you No, it's not a Lekka one. It's, 
it's a tiny little carrot slider where the actual burger is just a disc of carrot. And then we have a carrot bun and a special sauce. Uh, and uh, that was that was a big hit. Okay. People laughed when it came out and they were excited. And I said, you know, I'm from New York City. I'm from America. It's hard not to do a burger. Well, maybe you can send me uh, your, the photos of the dishes and I can post it on the show page. That'd be great. Um, all right. So what they... So they... They made Japanese-style dishes to go along with your dishes, or they didn't? No, they did. They did some of their own signature dishes. Do they do the kind of pop-up with other chefs at the restaurant? No, this is the first time they've ever done it. Mm, Sounds like they had a lot of fun, so they might do another one, but we'll see. So I hope they do it again. I really, really do All right. And uh, what other places did you find interesting and inspiring during your trip? If you can share a little more. Uh, yeah. So the we went to the farmer's market, or one of the farmer's markets, uh, which uh, is very small compared to what I would think, like what we would think of as a New York City farmer's market. Uh, but it was pretty amazing, the produce. It was so beautiful. And so hyper seasonal again. Uh, I could have, it was only, I don't know, maybe 20 stalls, and I could have spent two days there just touching and looking at every single thing. Right. Yeah. I think they also are really into beautiful shapes and colors. So Japanese people tend to be obsessed with <laughs> yeah. how it looks. Yeah, yeah, just incredible. And then we had a, uh, we ended up actually having lunch here twice at circumstances. We didn't realize we were going back to the same place twice, but we went to a place called Mike. Uh, there's a, 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 a female chef who actually uh, went to the same school I did many years after uh, and who is Japanese and uh, her name is Keiko-san. And she uh, started this restaurant. It's tiny, maybe maybe eight feet um it's in a former garage and she cooks really sort of uh healthier uh natural foods uh a lot of like rice and seaweeds and but it was beautiful and delicious and it's not the kind of food that i would necessarily you know when i when i travel i'm not like oh i should go to a vegetarian restaurant and eat a plant-based meal and have it be all healthy. And I would have been so disappointed if I had missed this. Uh, what she's doing is pretty special. Right. Okay. And uh, so what's the name again if um, our listeners want to go there? Uh, Mike, M-I-Q-U-E. And so beautiful. You can, like her plates, they're just these little works of art. Mm, right. So, wow. I, that's another place I have to go. And uh, also, you went to um, uh, the cocktail bar, Bob Ben Pittich in Shinjuku. That's what I heard. I went where? Like a bit, uh, the cocktail bar. Oh, yeah, the cocktail bar. Yes. <laughs> Definitely had some cocktails. They were, that was really fun. Right. So, foods and vegetables um, used in cocktails? Yeah. So, we. Uh, at uh, Ben Fittich. Uh, you know, you, you, 
you're they're basically like what what vegetable do you feel like today and you're like i don't know i guess i feel like an onion <laughs> and they'll make you an onion cocktail uh they sort of look you up and down and think okay you want an onion cocktail you look like a bourbon person and i'm going to make you an onion bourbon cocktail and then you know it, it's really interesting because uh, they take everything from scratch and make it basically you have to be patient for your cocktail. It does. It takes definitely like a good couple of minutes to get to you. Uh, but it's amazing. You know, we watched them. I think my first cocktail was a yellow pepper cocktail. And I, we watched them mash a yellow pepper by hand and get this really beautiful, thick yellow pepper puree. So it was just so unbelievably like fresh and flavorful and aromatic and you know then all the preparation that went into the cocktail and uh you know 10 minutes later there's the this like sort of basically just yellow pepper cocktail in front of you that's delicious also served in a yellow pepper so the whole thing was fun (laughs) (laughs) well i'm sure it's a more nutritious too yeah exactly the fish specialist right so, okay, and I heard the name is Bob Ben Fittich. Yeah, exactly, Georgia. exactly. It's one of the top bars in the world, and I definitely second that. Mm, okay, and uh, so do you think it was easy to find vegetarian and vegan food in Tokyo? Because, you know, dashi, which is essential stock used for the majority of Japanese dishes, uh, is normally made of kombu and uh, cured bonito, which is not vegan or vegetarian. So it can be a little challenging, I think. How did you like? Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I think it is definitely challenging. Uh, It's there, uh, but you have to know where to look. Um, So there is like an underground vegan vegetarian uh, community, I would say. And there's actually like a couple of places we went into had books all about it and maps about where to find like vegan and vegetarian restaurants. And so it's there. Uh, I don't, I certainly think if you're vegan or vegetarian, you will find lots of delicious food. Uh, and I see feel felt like a lot of the sort of more chain restaurants and that doesn't make them bad. It just means they have lots of locations, uh, uh, offered something vegetarian. Like that was for sure. Most of them had it. Like we went to Korea and there was, vegetarian and a couple of the ramen places that had more than one location had a vegetarian ramen uh, option. But the sort of more one-off smaller places, you know, being vegetarian just seemed really foreign. They just, you know, it's hard. I had a lot of discussions with people where it felt like um, they just couldn't imagine uh, being vegetarian and make, finding vegetarian food in Japan and that it would be too hard to make Japanese food vegetarian and I think there's so much there to play with and so much to do and, and I know how important sashi is but uh, you know I, I feel like there's ways where you can and there are definitely delicious vegetarian uh, dashis yeah, I think uh, actually the government is seriously discussing what they should do about offering both of vegan and vegetarian because of the Olympics coming up and uh, you know, the halal or some certain, like, I don't think people took it seriously because vegetables are everywhere. Dashi is not going to kill you. So it's kind of like, okay, 
<laughs> so I think it's going to change soon, though. Well, thanks to the Olympics. Well, and, and I think it has to because otherwise, all of it, you know, the there's lots of sort of like veggie burger places and uh, vegetarian food that wasn't, let's say, uh, uh, yeah, traditionally uh, Japanese food. And those places, if they don't sort of figure out how to offer more Japanese or more vegetarian food are going to lose out. Right. Yeah. And if you go to Japanese restaurants in New York city, they are capable to offer vegan vegetarian versions because if you place bonito with just kombu or to make dashi, that's possible for instance. So yeah, I don't think it's too difficult to do it. No. And you know, there's, I had so many beautiful meals in Japan and I certainly didn't feel and every single one of them was vegan or vegetarian and I didn't feel like I was missing out. Right. So what do you think is the biggest difference between American and Japanese vegetarian cultures? Uh, actually, the only difference is the size and how much more accepted it is now to be vegetarian in uh, North America than it, than it is in Japan. You know, I, I feel like Japan uh, is a couple of years behind in their mindset about vegetarians and uh, plant-based food. Right. So hopefully, again, the Olympic Olympics is going to push them forward quickly to change that mindset. Oh, yeah. And then I think we should all be nervous because I think the food that's going to come out of Japan that's plant-based and vegetarian is going to blow us all away. Right. Yeah. Okay. And so... What did you learn from the trip overall to summarize your discoveries? Um, you know, I, I, the well, I, I guess there's two parts. One, uh, I'm always impressed by the level of service when I'm in Japan and just how kind and welcoming uh, uh, hosts are. And it's a really good reminder over and over to me to be a, a better restaurant host. Uh, and that my other big takeaway was, you know, in, in New York City, we're always looking for the next big flavor and the next big thing. And I feel like as a chef, we're always trying to outdo other chefs with, oh, taste this, taste this. It's so big. It's so spicy. It's so salty. It's so bitter. I, and, and and in Japan, when I, there were so many moments when I was eating when, again, I was just so consumed with the texture and the calmness of the dish and the uh, that, that inspired me, and then I want to take that a little bit more into my cooking and, and refine it and, and not fight for flavors, but instead sort of uh, find, the, find the, the soothing, calm parts of food. Mm, interesting, because it's not uncommon to find restaurants that's been you know, successful for over 10, even 20 years in Japan, and the waiting systems in Japan it doesn't dominate the life of you know, lifespan of restaurants. So it's more uh, accepting and kind of a nurturing uh, food industry culture in Japan. So, yeah, that's why I think that calmness of dishes become possible, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah it's amazing. It's, uh, it's intimidating and inspiring. Right. All right. So, uh, well, I look forward to finding, you know, something your discovery in Japan comes to new dishes, something reflective at Dirt Candy. So do you have any plans to change menu items? 
Yeah, we've actually, um, we have a couple of items that we've already put on that have been in, uh, inspired by the trip. We have a, a, it's not vegan, but it is vegetarian. Although we do have a vegan version, but we have a Chawan Mushi. Uh, we had, I'd had a delicious one at the, at Dorf Kame. And at the same time, in a separate dish, uh, they had this really, really interesting uh, okra dish. Uh, okra was very much so in season at the time. And uh, they did something incredibly beautiful uh, that I don't think my customers are ready for here. They really, they pounded it a lot. So it was very gelatinous, but full of texture, full of flavor. Uh, and I kind of actually combined the two. We have a, so now we have a chawanushi dish with a, very, very thinly sliced okra uh, that's been steamed. And uh, then on top, uh, I have actually made a very light gumbo broth because gumbo in the American South does use okra. So it kind of, it's, it's dirt candy, but it's also Japanese. Uh, and then we also have, uh, which I'm really excited about, uh, a spinach ramen. We ate quite a bit of vegan ramen in uh, Tokyo and it was good I just felt constantly that it veered more on the side of healthy than you know like comforting and uh, so we have this really I think beautiful uh, roasted spinach broth uh, and there's a little bit of smoked miso in there and then we have a scallion oil and we have spinach ramen noodles and uh, some roasted spinach on top and uh, the lilac spinach from the uh, spinach meal say so it's quite beautiful to hold it but it's also really comforting and it's uh, it's my perfect bowl of ramen as a vegetarian right wow okay so well as of tonight the new city restaurants are going to be closed unfortunately so as soon as we open i'll come and uh, taste that ramen and everything else so i hope it's going to be soon Please, please do. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, for our listeners, where can we find you online? Uh, yep. So Instagram, which is where I do the most of my social media work, is uh, Dirt Candy NYC. And we also have our website, which is Dirt Candy NYC. Right. Cool. All right. So thank you for joining us today, Amanda, and uh, good luck with everything. Thank you. You as well. <laughs> right. So listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japanese.heritageradionetwork.org or akikotema.com. Japanese is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is Matt Patterson, and thank you for listening, and be safe. Well, everyone, thank you. Japanese is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. 
Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.